We talk about that all the time in evangelical Christianity. Oh, it's not religion, it's a relationship. But unfortunately, we don't teach people how to have healthy relationships. Right. And if you can't have a healthy relationship with another human, how do you expect to have one with a God you can't even see? Yeah. So, so we started seeing salvation as healthy attachment to God. And what would church look like then if church were healthy attachment with each other and God together? Yeah. Not not like with each other, you know, and then you go be with God alone and then church is mm -hmm. us together. No, what if we could hear God's voice together? And what if we learn to have healthy attachment or relational skills, <laughs> the ability to have healthy relationship, love our enemies, stay in dialogue with people who are polarized in their thinking. Like what if we had that mm -hmm. type of maturity in our relationships and what if we called that church? And if that really were church, how does that change our practices? Well, welcome everybody to another episode of the Communitas podcast. Uh, again, I'm with Joy today, and we have the great honor of speaking to an old friend who's been a part of Communitas for over 20 years, Tony Daniels. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tony. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joy and Jeff, to be here. So glad, so glad to be with you. Um, gosh, Tony, there's just a, a, a lot. I'm, I'm looking over at your various bios and uh, information about your various books and all kinds of things. So I know there's just a lot for us to talk about, um, but why don't we start for, for those in Communitas and out of Communitas that really don't know the trajectory of your story. Why don't you give us an overview of that? Okay. So I'll do this as quickly as possible. Um, when I was in high school, um, my husband and I went to high school together. We were high school sweethearts. Um, oh, wow. And we were both from more secular backgrounds. Um, he he got saved in high school, accepted Christ in high school. And um, and I had come to Christ at eight years old, but my parents, uh, while they were culturally kind of Christian, it was very different um, than most kind of evangelical, fundamental sort of things that were going on. Um, and we found a, an incredible church of 7,000 members by the mm -hmm. time I was in high school. We had hundreds in our youth group. And it really served as kind of surrogate family for me uh, to help me develop some skills that I had not developed. But we, I went to a secular school. And so every day I would walk into the school building and have no clue how to live my faith. <laughs> I was uh, like, mm. I'm in church every time the doors are open. It was a safe haven. But Matt and I would go to school and we would be like, we don't see Christ here. We don't know how to live Christ here. And as much church as I'm getting in that building, there's no way it's getting out of the building into my own family, much mm. less my school. Mm. So, I mean, we did cantatas. We were there 24 seven in the church building. But again, Outside of the building, no one knew how to live their faith. And in fact, my family didn't even pray together. So like, how do you, you know, make sense of that growing up in that environment? So loving my church, but yet not, not connecting the dots with how to live this in a world that's not Christian, because my world yeah. wasn't. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So um, that was birthed in Matt and I before we ever dated a desire to go into missions, cross-cultural ministry. And so at 16, I gave my life to service overseas, wow. which is ridiculous, I know. And he did too. And we were <laughs> the only two people in, in, that we knew, right? And so um, that just began a beautiful relationship where in high school, we were starting prayer groups on campus and leading worship and inviting people in our home and doing radical, crazy things that most people don't do it 16. 
Um, <laughs> so that was the beginning. But the question, right, the question works itself forever. Uh, really, I think it's still working itself in us of how do we get church out of that wall, out of those walls and yes. into real lives? And so it was in seminary we met Linus Morris, and he was our one of our professors there. And he was talking of this relational Christianity that Matt and I had experienced with each other and with a few others. And, and we had not ever been to like a church that was living this way, really. Mm-hmm. And so we were so drawn to what Linus was doing and what Communitas was doing at the time. But we also felt called to Latin America because we both spoke Spanish. So he was anthropology major, Spanish. I was sociology and Spanish. And so we were just drawn to uh, the least reach of Latin America, basically, which was Uruguay, South America. So that's how we ended up in Uruguay. And um, within three months of being there, we thought we would die there. We literally just felt like this, the, we culturally were prepared for this culture. It was completely secularized, mm. completely European. Yeah. Uh, they had murdered all of the indigenous population when they settled. So it was like a piece of Europe mm. fell off and floated down. Huh. Um, and so um, that's where we were um, at that time. And thanks to Communitas, uh, they didn't accept us yet, um, but they <laughs> nurtured us. And Linus came down and did conferences and stayed connected with us and continued mentoring us even when we were down in South America, lost <laughs> lost in South America, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to Europe. Um, and what we discovered there um, changed our lives because there were a few things. And one was um, that mental illness, uh, we wanted, mental illness was ramp, rampant, rampant. Mm. Everyone we met mm. had a suicide in their family. Either wow. their parent had committed suicide, had intended, they had, or they were in a mental institute. Wow. So wow. we're sitting there going, how does God make sense in a world of trauma? In a, and, and we're talking, this was 96, 97. Mm-hmm. So we're facing trauma before trauma, you know, response was a, a vocabulary word. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. trying to figure out how do we do this? Um, and then we started realizing we were suffering traumatic um, symptoms as well. My husband mm. and I coming from very broken families um, and living in a context, as you know, without any family support and any church support at all, having children, yeah. and which is mm. a whole different conversation yeah. <laughs> about yeah. should that ever even happen? Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that forced us to start seeking resources for ourselves um, so that we would survive. Uruguay was known as the graveyard of missions. And mm-hmm. so every everyone lasted two or three years and then they went home. And we were determined that was not going to be us. So we had to ask for help. And I'll pause there, but that was that began the journey into joy. Joy, as you were asking earlier, it began, <laughs> it began this journey into emotional healing um, that is continuing till today, but it shapes our ecclesiology profoundly at this point in our lives. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, the, the trauma piece is just so interesting to me. I, and yeah, I think culturally we've had an awakening around the, the concept of trauma and big T trauma, little t trauma, uh, accumulation of trauma. It does have a cumulative effect. I mean, there are so many, so many elements to that. Um, it, it, so, so you brought your own trauma with you into <laughs> a place that is trauma stricken. Yes. <laughs> I mean, sometimes those two don't go very well together. And maybe that's why we fit in so well in that culture. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We knew where they were coming from. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it but it also put you in a place in it sounds like you had a, a response to it that 
it certainly is needed for today, but maybe was way ahead of its time. And so what were some of the practices that you engaged in to help overcome some of that? So we um, thankfully had some really good therapists in the States, uh, Mike and Mary Haas, who were referred to us by Communitas. Good. Um, and they came down and did extensive, um, intensive on-site with us, good. Uh, wow. which was incredibly helpful. Um, but pushing into community, our, we developed Uruguayan family. So um, the first 18, well, the first 15 years we were there was creating family for ourselves, which for us was a church. That, that's what we thought planting a church was, was actually creating family. Um, and so we had about 30 people that were our family and and that they got us through as well. So that giving, mutually giving and receiving with our people instead of us being some pastors that mm-hmm. were there to offer everything to the natives. <laughs> I know yes. that's silly, but we're talking 25, 30 years ago, right? Missionaries, mm-hmm. we were trying to undo that whole colonialization mentality, but it's almost innate in us to think that we have the answers and we're going to go offer them. Um, But we quickly discovered because of our own trauma responses down there that we didn't have any answers. By the second year in, we looked at each other and said, we don't know anything except Jesus loves me. This Mm. I know. We don't know Mm. anything else. Like no other certainty is there anymore except the presence of Jesus Christ because we feel him and we see him and he's healing me and he's helping me and he's speaking to me. But that's the only certainty I have now. So like breaks every single paradigm (laughs) of, you know, right thinking is what church is all about. And you have to have the right theology Mm. and the right. So way early in our journey, um, we were broken. Um, And for whatever reason, we let ourselves stay in that place instead of reject it, get angry, leave, run, you know, I don't know if we were stupid or what, mm-hmm. <laughs> tenacious, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but we just stayed in it and let God uh, minister us through Uruguayans, some of them not even Christians, right? Yeah. But let them love us um, into health. Um, so that coupled with good help, really good help uh, was essential. Um, and that led us into some of, some of these organizations that today form part of what we call the relational revolution, um, which mm. Communitas is one of those. It was our first, right? Yeah. Uh, Godly Play is another one, which you, you've talked, you mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, a way of being with children that's holistic, that's whole-brained, that makes space um, not to not to pour into children what they should know, but educe out of them the relationship with God that they already have. Yeah. <laughs> so it's radically mm. different paradigms, right? So godly play and then um, thrive with Dr. Wilder and Life Model Works Ministry. Uh, Chris Corsi is thrive. Life Model Works was Dr. Wilder. Um, Alan Shore. So all of that began to shape a theology or an ecclesiology of what if, what if, and, and soteriology, what if, what if salvation is really a healthy attachment to God? Mm-hmm. It's mm. supposed to be a relationship, right? We talk about that all the time in evangelical Christianity. Oh, it's not religion. It's a relationship. But unfortunately, we don't teach people how to have healthy relationships. Right. And if you can't have a healthy relationship with another human, how do you expect to have one with a God you can't even see? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so we started seeing salvation as healthy attachment to God. And what would church look like then? If church were healthy attachment with each other and God together, yeah. not not like with each other, you know, and then you go be with God alone and then church is mm-hmm. us together. No. What if we could hear God's voice together? And what if we learned to have healthy attachment or relational skills, <laughs> the yeah. ability to have healthy relationship, love our enemies, 
stay in dialogue with people who are polarized in their thinking? Like, what if we had that Mm. type of maturity in our relationships? And what if we called that church? And if that really were church, how does that change our practices? Right? Because our, our main practice won't be to go sit and listen to a sermon on Sunday morning because right. that doesn't grow any relational skill whatsoever. No. Right. Whatsoever. Oh, I love, oh I love all goodness. of that. Gosh, there's so much good stuff in there. Um, you know, it was, it was pre-enlightenment, but the enlightenment didn't, didn't help mm-hmm. us Western Christians in this concept that orthodoxy was prominent. Um, r- really? I mean, Jesus said, you know, go and make disciples he didn't say go and proclaim. I mean, he did in a sense proclaim the good news, but uh, I think we've confused proclamation and orthodoxy with orthopraxy, right? Which is having people see that there is a life and that life happens relationally. So um, thank you for for mentioning that. I am curious because, you know, in some ways, Communitas has been following this radical idea of community development for quite a long time, right? We don't go and plant services. Yeah. Um, and we don't necessarily send preachers, right? Um <laughs> so, but what did that do to your thinking as you were wow. going to Uruguay? Oh, you may have goodness. been thinking, oh, we've got to find a building and and start no. a service. Oh God, no. <laughs> Never. <laughs> yeah. We knew it would never work in Uruguay. Within three to six months, we knew the only thing that would work in Uruguay would be radical relationship through family networks. So period, we knew immediately there's, we're never going to see a service like, like what Westerners have. Um, and so we began cultivating those radical relationships. Um, we, we took on serve the city. So I don't know if you remember serve the city. Okay. So I don't even know what year it was. It was probably it was over 10 years ago, no, probably 15 years ago now. Um, my husband founded Serve the City Uruguay, and that was brilliant and incredible. And we loved the 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 premise, right? That it's not us going to serve the needy, it's all needy and everyone's needy. Yep. <laughs> Just started with the premise that we're all needy. Those, uh-huh. are, those who have it together and those who don't, we're all needy and we all need to mutually give and receive. So can we invite everyone to serve with us? And we saw so many people come to Christ because they were serving alongside of others, right? Yeah. And and because God just showed up, just showed up and they, they would have visions and they would see Christ as they were serving someone. I mean, it was incredible. Yep. <laughs> Little boys on the street who were street kids who never had heard of a hug before. You know, when we gave them free hugs, they were like, mm. this is a hug. I've never had one. Can I have another one? And then oh we were goodness. like, yeah. And they're like, can I go give them? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> go give them. <laughs> so Serve the City was just an ingenious creation. And I know that came to us through Communitas. Um, And my husband is just an incredible uh, man. So we did that. Godly play was another thing that I got through Communitas because um, it was through an exposure session at one of our uh, conferences in Europe. Um, With Troy, Katie. And then yeah. Mm. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> and and then uh, it was Amy actually. Um, uh, Amy introduced it to my husband, who who then uh, yeah I I got to watch. I think I don't remember if it was. I don't remember who actually did the. I want to say April did the original the 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 story I saw, but I can't sure. remember. Yeah. It was so long ago. Um, and then the idea of what if we had a training center, right? A, a retreat place, but also an intentional community outside of the city 
where we could train and live and live in community together, but also be actively engaged with the inner city at the same time. And so that was um, the San Geronimo Initiative or the Geronimo Center for Innovation and Leadership that we birthed down there. Um, we were giving conferences and schools on uh, relational skill training and development on joy, um, on quieting. And because their staff was, was divided, people, it's such a cutthroat society because there are so few jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, so even in, yeah, even in education, it, people would, would they just didn't trust each other at all. So they would bring up us on to help create trust in their in their school setting and on their staff and understand joy and the importance of that. And we discovered that that's what we felt like atheists were missing. That's why they didn't believe in Jesus, because as we cultivated joy with them, they literally would say, I can't deny God's existence anymore because I feel him giving me joy and it's not coming from me. Mm -hmm. And so just seeing that how important that concept of relational joy is um, when it's nailed down the way Dr. Wilder describes it and practice the way Chris Corsi's developed it. And it's, it's incredible. So um, yeah, all of that came out of our relationship with Communitas, that passion for embedding and at the same time um, living community together in a different way that brings hope to the world and then going back in the city. And so um, it continues on. Our Uruguayans have taken it over and they are uh, doing an incredible job, better than Matt and I ever could have, which is uh, humbling. I love that though. Isn't <laughs> it's that, very humbling yeah. and very sad. You know, our dreams are being realized <laughs> by other people. That Aww. was a whole grieving process that took about a year when I got home, but mm. it's beautiful, right? That's what, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's really yeah. how you would hope that it would happen. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, we so just good. never saw ourselves leaving, so. Mm. I'm really intrigued about the idea of attachment. I'm wondering if you could dig into that a little bit more. I just know from what I'm learning through my schooling, how core foundational that is. And, and how do you restore that? I mean, that's something that, you know, takes sometimes years of therapy and you're talking yeah. about doing it in practice. What did that look like in groups independently, yeah. you know, as, as a community? Yeah. Well, I want to point you to a resource, first of all, that is incredible. Okay. And it's Crispin Mayfield's Attached to God. Recent, hot off the press. I mean, it's been about a year, but, you know, relatively recent, right? Mm -hmm. um, he has done one of the most amazing jobs that I have come on in my 20 years of into this of not just talking about attachment, but specifically how it affects our relationship to God and to each other. Hmm. So it's so brilliantly done. It's so easy to understand my 10-year-old. Well, he's not 10 anymore. My 13-year-old can understand it. Um, and yet so profound that we could spend a long time diving into it to, to restore mm. that attachment and heal that attachment. So excellent resource, um, apart from doc, any of Dr. Wilder's material. Um, so coming from Alan Shore and the whole attachment theory, um, Dr. Wilder kind of translated Alan Shore to the rest of us humans who can't understand <laughs> that level. Mm -hmm. um, but really, it the, the, the theory says that within the first three years of your life, um, your your parent, your caregiver reproduces their brain in your brain, their their relational brain. Yeah. So whatever skills they don't have, you're not going to have. Whatever skills they have, you're going to have. Whatever mental illness they have, you're going to have. Mm -hmm. So and and then you basically spend your the rest of your life living out of that or intentionally growing into a fuller expression of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So people are like, well, golly, you only lived with your parents for 10 years. How could that be affecting you? You've been married to me for 40, you know, and it's like, <laughs> well, 
It really does. Like we're really that the first three years of life really do impact us. Um, mm-hmm. And specifically, you know, were you fed? Were you cared for that first year? Um, or were you left to cry it out? And were you on scheduled feedings, for example? Mm-hmm. So this touches a whole history of Christian uh, culture that Mm -hmm. without realizing it was incredibly abusive. Mm -hmm. So for years, uh, since 1950, from when I can, all the way until my first was born, the Christian church taught, I'm not going to mention any, any, I'm not Mm going to mention anything, but they taught, right? You need to be in control of your child's schedule and you need to schedule their feedings and you need to let them cry it out. In fact, doctors said in the 50s that the the babies needed to cry it out and that if you, you would hurt them if you fed them when they were hungry. Mm -hmm. Um, So unfortunately that alone, and that's just one piece, right? When you, that's not even abuse. These are parents that love their children, (laughs) but just not feeding them not feeding when you when you're hungry or swaddling you when you're when you're when you want to be held those types of things grow into a brain into the amygdala into the the coarse part of your brain the world mm-hmm. is not safe my needs will not be met and i can trust no one mm-hmm. so if you have that type of brain no matter what you do with your faith when you're 15 and up Mm-hmm. you will have a hard time feeling loved by God, feeling his presence with you, sensing his voice and thinking that he's going to take care of you. And so you mm-hmm. will always, you know, in, until you identify it intentionally and start working intentionally to erode that or to grow a secure attachment, as we talk about, then mm-hmm. then that's going to be your reality. And it took us many years before Matt and I discovered that. And it took depression. It took two nervous breakdowns in Uruguay from my husband. It has been a long road to a secure attachment, um, but it has been a road towards a secure attachment. And that's the beauty of it is that thankfully, because of the interventions we've had in our life and the incredible communities that are around us, we have been able to intentionally grow secure attachments with each other and um, everyone around us. That's that's oh. such good news to hear. You know, I mean, it speaks to one. It gives hope to mm-hmm. those who think this is just how it will always be, uh, and two, it it also speaks to the elasticity of the brain that that it can we can, it can change. Isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. God's yeah. grace. Yeah. Right. <laughs> His grace is in our brain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's just such a different way rather than adding in a lot more information and content, which I think is kind of the automatic thing. It's really going back down to the heart. Oh, and there's your little heart sign. <laughs> I have little heart sign. Um, and, and that's the hardest part, right, Joy, is that in the Christian world, if you were anxious or if you were having, you know, depression, you know, and maybe it's not so much now. In, in most circles, but some are still there. You know, mm-hmm. then it's memorize this Bible verse, right? Try to try to talk your way into not fearing. Talk your way into. So it's this. I'm going to do a nonverbal here. Y'all can describe it if you want, but it's this. <laughs> Yes. It's like where you're trying to shove something into yourself, but yourself isn't able to receive it, right? Right. Instead of that, where it births from within and just flows right out of you. Mm-hmm. So think about how this, I mean, evangelism will be radically shifted if we just understand this, because yes. it's no more, I have to guilt you into sharing the gospel. I have to tell you that you're supposed to, I need to tell you how to, you're supposed to be missional because you don't obviously have a passion for it or know how, right? If, if people realize that it's about a healthy connection to God and that when I sense God's presence, it's going to 
well up within me and overflow, and I'm going to be able to hear his voice, so I'm going to know yeah. what to do in my world, then there is no separation between soul care and mission. Right. There mm-hmm. is, it yes. dissolves the separation. It dissolves the separation between evangelism and discipleship because we understand that it's not that this person's self-centered. It's that this person doesn't have a healthy connection to Jesus Christ. And it, when I can repair that connection, they're going to be lit on fire, unstoppable. It's about repairing the connections. But unfortunately, we think they need more Bible, they need more prayer, they need more whatever. And really, they they just need to connect to Christ. That's right. <laughs> and we need to get out of the way. <laughs> or or the lie that was used for a long time. I think you're right. I think it is starting to to shift a bit now, hopefully. Uh, but you just don't have enough faith or you have to pray. Right. If you're sick in mind or body, uh, if God's not answering that prayer, then then there's something wrong with you. You know, it's, oh my gosh. Yeah. And if you can't, yeah, if you can't hear from Jesus, even if it's trauma, it's still your fault, right? Like, and and for years we even struggled with what happened because my husband couldn't hear from God and I could very easily. So it was like, God, what do we do with this? Right. And thankfully through Thrive and Life Model Works, we learned specific exercises I could do with my husband and that he could do so Mm. that he could grow the, what we call the truster, (laughs) the joy (laughs) part of his brain so that he could perceive the the presence, the living presence of Jesus Christ. And within a month of doing these specific exercises, he could perceive the living presence of Christ. And it was so powerful and incredible. So there's hope, but, but most people, most churches, you know, don't know brain science. They don't understand the way mm-hmm. our brains work. If you talk about brain science, they think that, well, you need to talk more about Jesus and stop talking about brain science because that's iffy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And I'm like, okay, but God made our brain. Exactly. <laughs> and if we could cooperate with his creation, maybe um, we yeah. would get somewhere. <laughs> Right. Which is again about not being separated. It's all connected. And that cooperation is, yeah. Kind of it seems like such a simple truth too, right? I mean, if, right. if we don't have trust, then the communication highways in our brain are completely blocked. We're, mm-hmm. we're not going to have, we're not going to receive communication and we're not going to give good communication. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, Jeff, I heard you talk about spiral dynamics in one of your podcasts, so yeah. I'm just going to geek out. Um, <laughs> well, but good. When you, <laughs> but when you overlay even spiral dynamics over maturity, emo- mm. human emotional maturity, you, you find that the system and the human path are very similar, very similar. And so it, mm. what we're talking about here is relational skills and maturity, really. And we have a Christianity that's stuck and thwarted and, and almost teenage maturity, if that. Some of it's infant. A lot of it's infant. Um, But some get to like a teenage level of maturity. But but most institutional situations are are no bigger than teenage maturity. And so, which is why we have over 65 million people in the States alone who've walked away from church because they've matured beyond the teenage... Uh, role and they go, you know what? Church is actually crippling my relationship with God now. It's not helping me anymore. And they had mm-hmm. to leave to save their faith. And so that gets into what I, what Matt and I do today, which is Luke 10. And it's a, a, an organization that helps the, these people <laughs> figure out what's next. How mm-hmm. do we be church in the second half of life, so to speak? Mm-hmm. How do we be church in a way that that reproduces spontaneously relational skills in our children? So it's yeah. not even, so, so even with us, the youth ministry and children's ministry aren't separate. It's all mm-hmm. the same. 
Mm-hmm. It, soul care, mission, youth, family, it's all the same because we train parents to grow relational skills and naturally pass them on to their children around the dinner table and be church every single day. Yeah. <laughs> every single day, connect heart to heart with each other, heart to heart with God. And you're training your teens, your children at every age, your neighbors when they come over for dinner. So you're literally living this reproducible, spontaneous expansion of relational restoration. I love it. Communion, community, and mission. I mean, that's... Yes, all together in in every family. What if every single family we ever knew could do that and be that? And Mm. it all begins with this healthy... With reorienting what church is in your mind, right? If church Mm -hmm. is a worship service and a preacher in in a certain space with a whole big group of people, you will never, ever validate the need to sit around my table and connect heart to heart with each other and with God. Yeah. But Mm. if I see that as church... That's that's church. That yep. really is at its core. Two or three gathered in my name. I'm there. We're having church. And and if we can do it daily, we grow the skills. That's the thing. If you only do that once a week with your small group, you're right. going to be really way behind someone who's training every day because it's just like a, a, a soccer skill or a piano skill or a language skill. Sure. If you only practice once a week, you're going to suck at it. If you do it every day, you're going to get good, ninja level good, mm-hmm. right? I don't know any – you know, I don't understand – if you don't want to be a ninja Christian, like <laughs> be a ninja level, skillful, <laughs> skillful believer so that Jesus can totally inhabit my body and 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 live this life through me, through my unique design. Uh, I want it all, right? So mm. let's train for it anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, Tony, it sounds we do... like it takes high priority. <laughs> yeah, yes. it does. It, uh, yeah, it's like becoming good at anything, right? 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And how many Christians have spent 10,000 hours practicing healthy relationship? <laughs> right. Wow. <laughs> Radical. Yeah. Tony, the, um, some of the, the work that we do here locally has attracted a lot of younger people. Mm-hmm. And many of them have said to me, the thing that was the biggest threat and inhibitor to their spiritual growth is the microphone. Wow. Now we're speaking into microphones now because we're recording this, but I mean, amplified voices, right? Wow. When you, when you put the <laughs> power of communication in a single microphone, <laughs> um, mm. wow. that, that's a really interesting kind of way. So it, I think it's helping us to understand, um, especially for next generation leaders that, you know, I, yeah. I, I'm not saying that it's a form for sure. And I'm not yeah. saying it's all bad. I mean, some of, some of the greatest learnings I ever had were yeah. from people with microphones and professors, you know, giving lectures. Um, and the next generation is saying, yeah, you know what? Uh, that's, that's not, that's not working. And if I can, the reason why I see this so crucial is because that actually is a, a direct result of how we view how we hear from God. Mm. So, so if we think we hear from God through the Bible only, and it has to be a good preacher to interpret the Bible to us, then the microphone becomes crucial, essential, and, and you cannot take that away because mm. you're taking away the only way we hear from God. Yeah. But if the way we hear from God is through the multifaceted wisdom of community, like if, if I hear from God because I'm listening to Jeff's heart and I'm seeing Jeff's heart and Joy's heart, and then I'm trusting you to to listen to God together with me, then your voice Mm. is going to matter. And your voice is going to matter, Joy, because I believe Mm. I can't hear God's whole wisdom unless I hear your wisdom too. 
So we're going to go in rounds. Uh It changes the way you are church in every single environment. If you believe that God shows up in the multifaceted wisdom of the community, his grace is there in in, in all of us. Mm -hmm. And we have to reduce it and listen to actually Mm -hmm. hear it. Cannot tell you times, you know, John and Kent are, are my coworkers. I disagree with them and I'm angry because I feel like he's blocking mm. my path, right? Especially mm. when we're riding together. I'm like, if you would just realize I'm right, then this would not be a problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and I have to breathe and go, well, do I really believe that, Tony? Or do I believe that I have to hear John's voice to get to the truth and to hear God? So Tony, you think mm-hmm. you're right, but you need to step back and listen to John because God speaks through John too. And, and his wisdom is in John as well. So by us listening deeply to each other and really hearing each other, we're going to draw out the truth of God. I don't have a, I don't have a handle on that myself. (laughs) I need the whole community for that. And so the way we, we, that, I mean, that's one of the main cultural shifts that Mm -hmm. you're drawing on right there is if we just viewed it as an ecosystem of grace an ecosystem, everyone different and contributing and giving and receiving. And the only way I can see God is to see everyone's voice. Mm-hmm. That's going to radically shift how we are church. And this generation growing up, they're done. They're done yeah. with a sage on the stage. And they will not be a <laughs> part of a community that is not a multifaceted wisdom of God. And my son, my son so he's 13. And he says, Mom, I really, really believe that God is almost like a big puzzle. And that if every human would step into the fullness of who he's made them to be, and we could educe that out of them, he knows that word, we can educe that out of them, draw out their unique design, it's almost like putting that puzzle into that, putting that piece into that puzzle. And if mm. every human, if we could do that with every human, we could see God, yeah. <laughs> his mm. fullness. And I was like, mm-hmm. you've got it, baby. That's exactly, that's exactly the plan. <laughs> Wow. So, but that's so radically different than the way I was brought up or the way most churches culturally are. They might, they might agree with that idea, but the practices don't match the value, if right. you know what I mean. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're speaking about amplifying every voice, every yes. voice counts, every voice matters. And, you know, doing it on a smaller scale, like you're saying in those conversations and when you're working together is one thing, but if, if, if that's happening in multiple places, it becomes a really large impact, I think, pretty quickly. And when people don't have to demand for their voice to be heard, right. yeah. it's a whole different ballgame. When they mm-hmm. are, when every voice is honored and they know they're going to have to listen to, they learn to listen as well. Mm-hmm. So it's very different than the, the cultural, uh, what you're seeing culturally where everyone's demanding that their voice be heard. This is so mm-hmm. different because everyone's demanding that every voice be heard (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that we learn to listen because that's the skill that's missing in our culture today to be able to implement this. So good. Tony, you have so much wisdom in there. Um, You really should write books. Oh, you have. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about them. That is so sweet, Jeff. Um, I just have to drop this. I was with Alan Hirsch a few weeks ago at a conference, yeah. and I went just to see him because I knew he was going to be there, and I haven't seen him in years, and he's in Australia, so when am I going to get to see him? So 
I go and I, I'm talking to him about one of the latest books he wrote. And I'm like, you know, Alan, we had a conversation. Um, I said, you're so difficult to read. Like, I really have to stop everything and just focus. And he goes, well, that's intentional. I want you to stop everything and focus. Mm. And then at the end of our conversation, he goes, I'm sorry, y'all can cut all this out. But he goes, <laughs> he goes, you know, you really should write books. And I was like, <laughs> oh, well, I have. And he goes, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Right. <laughs> Like, that's okay, Alan. I wouldn't expect you to know that I've written any books. Oh, <laughs> it was that's so, so good. funny. It was so funny. Um, so yeah, so books. Um, the first book was Back to Joy. Um, it needs to be rewritten. I'm just going to say the disclaimer. Um, the best version of it is on audio because I'm reading it. And so you get to hear it. But it's yeah. it's raw journal entries from the 18 years of going wow. through this process towards a secure attachment for myself. Huh. And in the book, I share very practical tools to help. So very intentional practices that, that I did that you can do to grow that attachment in yourself um, with God. Great and with others. Um, very raw. Um, and so you get all, um, <laughs> like mm. it needs to be edited. Um, the second book, I think after that was, um, well, I'll go for my, my second personal one. The second personal one is four keys to parent fearlessly. Mm. And that has very personal stories in it as well. But my, my desire for that book is I had, I had already raised a teenager by the time I wrote that. And she had come off the wheels in every single way throughout her teenage life. Um, and we had literally been through more trauma with her than I think anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, and during that time, God was teaching me what to do with my fear um, because fear came up often. I was afraid of her killing herself. I was afraid of all kinds of things. Um, and he would work with me on how to bring, how to recognize when I was afraid and then bring it to him and realize I wasn't alone, mm. that he was with me. And that's the definition of joy. Joy is mm. someone is glad to be with you no matter what, no matter what you're feeling no matter what you're doing. So in the Garden of Eden, they had sinned, and what? God was glad to be with them anyway. Anyway, even though they had sinned, he wanted to be with them. And that's huge. That That is the power uh, in our brain. Scientifically, they have proven that's the power to hold us together um, in our mind, to keep us from disintegrating <laughs> mm -hmm. when, when we are under trials. So realizing he was with me, um, and then he would reveal truth to me. He would tell me what he saw. He'd tell me the future. He told me her future. Um, at least I believe that he did um, through a vision and I still hold to that vision. Mm. So no matter what happens with her right now, I don't have to fear. So I can still grieve. I can still mourn that she's hurting or whatever. But I know that in the end, she ends up letting Jesus love her, mm. letting him love her deeply because he. it's so clear to me. The image is seared in my head and he promises me it's going to happen. So it lets me let go of fear. So I wrote the book for all parents of all, even parents who don't have natural children, but are parenting, spiritually parenting, because it helps us approach these things in a totally different way of with listening to God. Um, instead of, you know, gritting and bearing it, trying to memorize more scripture or parenting out of our fear, which is even worse because we do much more damage when we parent out of our fear. So that's four keys to parent fearlessly. Um, and then two books for church planters. So the first one is um, actually the second one that was released, but it's the first one. And it's called Relational <laughs> Revolution. 
Um, it's five shifts for rediscovering church's heart-to-heart connection. So everything we've been talking about today, it's an hour read or two-hour listen to. If you listen to John White reading it, he reads a little slow, but that's great. Um, we have a lot of people that don't speak English as a first language, so it'll be great for them. Mm, right. <laughs> um, but this book is simple because it's 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 a manifesto for us. And in here, we're trying to define what we feel like are the, the five core values of the relational revolution that is upon us, that mm-hmm. God is inviting his church back into, that communitas is living, that life model works is living. And we're, we're wanting to get this out there to every, every person, every people group that say, yeah, we want to be church relationally to give them words to express what that cultural shift looks like. Because I think a lot, especially the 65 million done, they don't, Oh, they know they walked away. They don't know why. A lot of them have no clue mm-hmm. what cultural things were bothering them or why when they stepped into church, they could see the millions of people, or the hundreds of people that need therapy. Yep. And they go, I don't want to be here. So this gives words, hopefully, to to all of that. Um, and then after we're breaking these down one by one. So the very first value is joy-fueled. And we've written a book on joy-fueled. Um, right. So catalyzing a revolution of joyful communities, I think is what that's called. So the next one coming will be Jesus-led because that's the next value of what does it look like to live actually connected to the simultaneously live streaming the presence of Christ and God (laughs) every minute of the day, as opposed to being functional deists where we rely on our principles and what we think is right instead of relying on listening to God and communicating with him about that. Mm. Um, So that book is to come. Along with four more. Wow. <laughs> You've got well, your please keep at it. <laughs> <laughs> really important, really important stuff. I, I, I'm, I'm reflecting on what you just said. I think, I think most, and I'll, I'll say Americans, although I think this is true of Europe too, frankly, um, we, we have chosen to make the tension uh, unbearable so that we either choose practically living as deists or as people of the family of faith. But but culture is making that so tenuous to have the the tension. We're afraid to walk in the tension, and that's where our growth happens, right? Um, so yeah, I like what you're saying. If we if we run from tension, we're not going to arrive. Yeah. Yeah, we hold a lot of tensions in Luke 10. So yeah. I love that you brought that up because um, you know, if you if you study Dan Siegel at all. He talks about wholeness being a river that mm. flows beautifully, but wholeness is held up by two banks, right? One is is rigidity and the yeah. other one is chaos. Yeah. And if you get too rigid, right, too structured, too rigid, which people are really structure sometimes, you do. You get lost on the bank and you don't get anywhere. But if you don't have any structure at all because you have an allergy to it and you know you go to the extreme chaos, then yeah, you, we're going to get off there as well. And so pretty much everything in life is attention to be held. Mm. Um, whereas our culture goes to the consistent extreme almost every time because right. it's easier. It's yes. much easier to go to a consistent extreme than to stay in the center of biblical tension. It's, it's just like it is. So is it soul care or mission? It's not either, or it's both together held in tension. Jesus came to seek and save all that was lost in me, right? In me, with me and my family, with me and the world around me. And at any minute, he is on mission in any of those areas, maybe all of those areas. So if I'm focused on missional being outward, 
I might literally blow implode in my family and lose my husband and my children because I'm being missional. It's like, no, no, I can be missional and actually be tending to my family (laughs) because if Christ is on mission right now with my children and my husband trying to restore us, trying to fill us with his presence so that we naturally overflowed, wrong Mm. to be outward focused when he's called me to be inward focused. So we have done a severe disservice to missionaries by telling them to be missional uh, as opposed to follow Jesus on mission wherever he leads. And that could be inward. It doesn't mean you're inward focused right now. It means yeah. you're following Jesus. And I think that was probably some of my my trauma with, mm-hmm. with the missional movement mm-hmm. or with church was during the nervous breakdowns and, and even when we had to come home off the field. You know, mm-hmm. we had to come home for family because my family was falling apart and needed to heal. And we I needed to stop. I was the one that wouldn't leave Uruguay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Jesus had to appear to me and say, you need to go home. And and it was devastating, right? Because I was going to sell it. I was going to leave it all, sacrifice it all, and always be in Europe. I was going to die there. And, and that would have been not following Jesus for me to do that. So mm-hmm. some people need to be told to go home, right. <laughs> not to go out. Yeah, and, right. and I was one of those. Very difficult. I, I like how you say, you know, it isn't an either or, right? You can't be fully missional if you're if you're not practicing in the studio. I mean, to go out, you have to go in. Uh, I kind of think of musicians. So, you know, you're you're in your practice room and you have to go in the practice. You got to go to the woodshed. You got to be in the shed before you can go out and perform in front of people. Mm-hmm. And so, if our studio, if our if our if our lab is our home and our family. Um, that's where we where we get trained well enough to actually go out. Um, yes. So so we become more yeah. missional by by focusing. intentionally yeah. focusing. Yes, yeah. beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. yeah, that provides the depth. Yeah. yeah. So and, and the sus- and the sustenance. The right. how, you know when you when you're giving all the time. Uh, you burn out unless you have this renewable joy fuel, right? Unless joy mm-hmm. is your fuel. If guilt is your fuel or performance or success, right? Yeah. If I'm still, mm-hmm. if I'm still out there to prove, you know, to to win God's affection or to, you know, get the accolades or the recognition, right? Because I was a three on the Enneagram. Don't know if y'all speak Enneagram or not, but oh, yeah. boy, yes. I was in it. For, I was in it for the recognition for the first fifteen years. The so, show, <laughs> yeah, man, I want all that. Um, so you know, that's going to burn out. It's going to burn you mm-hmm. out. It's going to blow up. Um, at some point, we have to shift to joy being our fuel source, or we're going to hurt a lot of people in the process, which we've seen, right? In the Mars Hill, all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. that's gone on in the Christian church. It's because yeah. these people, we haven't shifted yet to joy as our fuel and valuing the, the relationships closest to us and relationships, right? Yeah. Um, instead of success or what things look like on the outside, because that can change over a dime. Right. right. However, you could have a million people in your church and tomorrow there Mm -hmm. could be three. It could change that fast. (laughs) Right. So, Tony, as we as we sorry, Joy, go ahead. I was just going to say, I have never heard of the concept of joy as fuel. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of blowing my mind right now. Someone who has this as their name. Um, I got a lot of messages while I was growing up about I mean, there were even signs in the 70s and 80s that said, Jesus, others, yourself, J-O-Y. And I had people in my church come up to me and verbally tell me that as if like, this is your life motto, particularly because this is your name. And so 
starting out in younger years, already experiencing some things that kind of put me in a victim position, I immediately absorbed all of that as like, I must be last. Absolutely. And then I'm, I'm just, you know, I've worked with that in my own growth and progress over the last several decades, but I've never heard this definition of joy is that someone is glad to be with you no matter what. And really recently in some, um, personal journeys. And then even on the explore call with communitas is where you're working out our life's mission. I mean, you just almost said it word for word is what I feel is my calling. What I'm led to do is be with people, see them, know them, let them know that they're loved no matter what. And you just said that I'm like, is this my name? Is this what it's always meant to be? And I, you know, just didn't even know it for all those years. I'm just so thankful. And to think of that as fuel is really empowering and life-giving. I'm sure not just for me, but I'm just taking that in wholehearted as since it's my name. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm well, I'm so glad to be able to share it. I didn't come up with it. Uh, the brain sciences (laughs) did and, and, and Dr. Wilder. Um, but the, um, that's, that is so critical what you just shared joy, because I think most Christians have no idea what joy means. And I didn't know, like it was an elusive, it was an elusive sensation that I think I'm supposed to feel, but I know it's not based on circumstances. Like we know that, (laughs) but yeah, but like, what is it? Like, but how do I know if I'm feeling it or not? I don't know. Well, Mm -hmm. thankfully science has helped us (laughs) realize that, that it's very concrete and it's very easy Mm -hmm. to know whether you have it or not. So there's no more guessing in my life and we can grow it and we can intentionally grow it. And that is powerful because you're not helpless anymore. We're not just helpless to try to figure out if we can grab that elusive sensation or not. Now we know mm. what it is and we know how to go after it. And God's right there going, yes, <laughs> because he created us for it. <laughs> it's it's supposed to be everything in, in our life. So yes, yes. Amen to that. And, wow. and I just, I give a shout out to training. If, if people have not heard of Thrive Training, Thrive Today, they've rebranded Thrive Today. Um, it is the most premier leadership training you will ever encounter in your life. It's a three-year program, um, and they do hundreds of hours of teaching around the brain science behind all of this. But then you, you gather for one week, and you practice, intentionally practice skills to grow joy. First year, growing joy. is all, That's all you're doing for 40 hours. Mm-hmm at their training. Second year, you get back to joy from the emotions, the negative, the five big negative emotions that hit us. And they're reproducing the first three years of your life. First year of life is receiving joy. Second year of life is learning to get back to joy from anger, sadness, hopeless despair, shame, and fear. But most of us never got that training. We didn't learn how to feel that someone's glad to be with me when I'm angry. Someone's glad to be with me when I'm scared. Mm -hmm. And you literally have to feel it a thousand times from each emotion. So none of us have that. So that's what no. you're to do is to shore up your back to joy from all your negative emotions. And your three is learning to intervene in yourself and others where your brain is stuck. So you hmm. start to learn all the processing of the five levels of the brain and what people need, depending on what their pain is and, and how to ask people to tell you what they need instead of just assuming and giving it to them because mm-hmm. you need different things depending on mm-hmm. where you're stuck. Sometimes you need information, sometimes you need coaching, but sometimes you need to hear from God and no words are going to help you because it's nonverbal. You have your your, your traumatized in a nonverbal part of your brain and no words, no scripture, none of that's going to help. It has to happen in a different way. So that's, that training is incredible. I highly recommend it for everyone. 
Okay. And we'll put that in the show notes as well as some of the other authors and books that you've mentioned. Really, really helpful resources. Yeah. Tony, this has just been such a joy. And (laughs) uh, I do hope that we can carry it on. Um, You mentioned spiral dynamics. Joy's husband is actually somewhat of a expert in that topic. So I want to have him as a podcast guest. Maybe we'll get you on too. My my husband's a much more, much more uh, knowledgeable about it. I'm the practitioner. I'm the, the tactician. So I'm running an organization using sociocracy um, as our governing agency or what we call divine governance because we include Jesus listening in our sociocratic practice. But sociocracy is very much in a teal more of a teal paradigm, which I don't expect anyone mm-hmm. to know what I mean, but hopefully you too. So, um, yes. so I've had the privilege of implementing uh, sociocracy in our in our organization, which uh, it just it, it really does help hear the ecosystem of grace and bring out the presence of God in a whole organization. It's incredible. So, if you haven't studied on sociocracy, Jeff. You need to. It's absolutely amazing. Um, but oh, that yeah. was my intro to uh, Spiral Dynamics. My husband's the geek, so I'll just uh, you know throw that out for him. <laughs> Great. He, he would love. You can always interview him. He'd love to chat for hours about. Let's that. do it. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. That would be fun. I would enjoy that. Well, Tony, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing part of your story. I, I do hope that we can carry this on. I feel like we've just touched the surface of some really important topics. Yeah. But boy, we could do a deep dive on so many of them. So if you're willing to come back, that would be fantastic. And people can find you too, Tony. I know we'll put this all in the show notes, but um, you also host a a podcast. How can people find you? Yes. So I have a podcast, Joy Fueled and Jesus Led. Surprise, surprise. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then lk10.com is our website, our organization. Um, We train you in how to live and how to facilitate um, communities in a way that's joy-filled and Jesus-led. So many of these these organizations in the relational revolution send their people to us, their leaders, to get our training um, because it's it, we've honed it over 20 years almost. Um, it starts with a five-week, six-week intro course. And then if you want to continue in communities of practice, we provide those. Um, and then we have facilitator training on top of that. So that's kind of what we do. Um, but it's, uh, it's luke10.com if you're interested in looking at that. Great, great, great. Well, thank you again. And uh, I do hope that our listeners will take a look at the show notes and find ways to take the next step on many of the things that you've discussed here today, get a couple Mm -hmm. of books, enroll in some training. And my goodness, if nothing else, let's just all start working on our trauma because we all have them. So yeah. Appreciate you. Well, thank you. Anytime. It's a joy to be with you guys. And I hope to see you in Europe at some point. I need to get reconnected and even figure out when our trainings are. I don't even know when our leadership summits are. July is the next one, but I'll I'll be in Spain in July. Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) Next year. Next year. I need to get it on the calendar for next year. Yeah. So that's wonderful. Thank you so much. We will for sure. Look forward to seeing you again. And you have been listening to another episode of the Communitas podcast. If you have enjoyed this, we encourage you to share it with friends and families and leave us a review. We're available on all the major podcasting platforms, and we look forward to being with you again on another episode of the Communitas podcast. Communitas.